coming up with a strategy without thinking about all of this, which for a climate institute or an agricultural institute is not generally our mandate, then that's where the problems begin to come. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. This episode of Global Dispatches was recorded as a live taping of the podcast produced in partnership with CGIAR, a global research partnership for a food secure future dedicated to transforming food, land, and water systems in a climate crisis. Global Dispatches and CGIAR are partnering on a series of episodes about the nexus between climate and security. In our conversation today, expert panelists discuss the path to resilient societies in a polycrisis era and soft launch CGIAR's new climate security sensitivity tool to assess the peace potential of climate adaptation. The episode kicks off with some opening remarks from Peter Lutterock, co-lead CGIAR Climate Security Alliance of Bioversity and SEAT. I then moderate a panel discussion featuring Carolina Sarzana, climate security specialist with CGIAR and the Alliance of Bioversity and SEAT, Linda Ogallo, climate adaptation expert at the Climate Prediction and Applications Center with the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, Susanna Huber, climate and energy advisor with the World Food Program's Eastern Africa Bureau, Eric Mariga, Regional Fragility and Resilience Coordinator at the African Development Bank. And Mana Farugi is the Climate and Environment Advisor at the United Kingdom's Foreign, Commonwealth, and Development Office. This is the fourth episode in this series. To access this series and more, please visit globaldispatches.org. Now here is Peter Lutterock to introduce the conversation. Welcome everybody to today's webinar on climate adaptation for peace. During this webinar, we will delve into the intricate web of connections between maladaptation, conflict risks, and the role of climate adaptation in producing peace co-benefits. Our goal is to reflect on these critical linkages and the imperative for a more comprehensive approach. In the face of unprecedented challenges, Posed by climate change, we recognize that climate adaptation must also promote peace, social cohesion, and stability in regions prone to climate vulnerability. The interplay between maladaptation, conflict, and the potential for peace co-benefits is a topic of great relevance in today's world. In our discussion, we will emphasize the necessity of tools and instruments that facilitate peace co-benefits within climate adaptation programs. We aim to explore how such tools can contribute to a more holistic approach, fostering a world that is not only climate resilient, but also peaceful. 
we have the privilege of hosting a panel of esteemed experts who will shed light on their experiences to bring about positive change in the realm of climate adaptation. The knowledge and insights are crucial in shaping our collective understanding of these compounded issues. We appreciate your presence and interest in this important endeavor toward more sustainable and peaceful climate action efforts. I'm now handing it over to our moderator, Mark Goldberg. Uh, thank you, Peter, and welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm the host of the Global Dispatches podcast, and today's conversation about the path to peace in resilient societies in a poly-crisis era is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast produced in partnership with CGIAR. This is the fourth episode in a series that examines the links between climate and security. To access other episodes in the series, please visit globaldispatches.org. I'll have a few questions for our panelists, but leave time for audience questions as well. To pose a question, simply leave a comment wherever you are watching the live stream. Uh, with that, I am pleased to introduce our distinguished panelists. Carolina Sarzana is the Climate Security Specialist with CGIAR, the Alliance of Bioversity and SEAT. Welcome. Linda Ogallo is Climate Change Adaptation Expert at the Climate Prediction and Applications Center with the Intergovernmental Authority on Development. Welcome. Susanna Huber is the Climate and Energy Advisor at the World Food Program's Regional Bureau in Eastern Africa. Eric Mariga is Regional Fragility and Resilience Coordinator at the Africa Development Bank Group. And Mana Farugi is Climate and Environment Advisor at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO. Uh, welcome, everyone. And Carolina, I'm going to kick off with you. Uh, CGIAR has designed a tool to assess the peace potential of climate adaptation. Identifying and mitigating maladaptation risks are important components of the tool. Can you please describe how the climate security sensitivity tool conceptualizes conflicts and maladaptation? And can you define maladaptation for us? Yes. Uh, thank you, Mark, for the question. Yes, and I think it's um, um, uh, defining maladaptation first is a good idea uh, since it's a uh, um, such a core um, component of the tool. So maladaptation is the process whereby improperly built adaptation strategies can increase vulnerability. So we can refer to maladaptation as climate initiatives that have uh, unwanted negative impacts on the vulnerabilities of other systems, sectors, or social groups. Um, some of these consequences include fostering power, uh, power asymmetries, grievances, or competition for resources. Um, yeah, so the unwanted effects are commonly recognized as uh, drivers of conflict, uh, as they can create and sustain lock-ins, they can magnify inequity and marginalize people and locations to areas even more exposed to other forms of insecurity or, or climate risks. Uh, this process is particularly relevant in fragile and conflict-affected contexts where underlying and pre-existing insecurity factors already exist and can therefore be easily exacerbated by inadequate uh, adaptation interventions. So the climate security sensitivity tool acknowledges the potential negative effects that inadequate interventions may have uh, on those pre-existing insecurity factors. Uh, and it helps prioritize the adaptation components that can instead address them. 
So if the severe risk factors of conflict and insecurity present in the areas for project implementation are not flagged and targeted, there are higher maladaptation dangers of exacerbating local risk factors. So the way that the climate security sensitivity tool uh, does this is by defining local drivers of conflict through data, assessing different crisis risk factors and their severity, and proposing ideal programmatic adaptation mechanisms accordingly. So by prioritizing different adaptation dimensions based on these concerning conflict risks on the ground, uh, it really strives to guide practitioners on, on preventing more insecurity-related issues. Thank you. And Eric, uh, we're going to turn to you now. Uh, as we explore the interplay between climate adaptation, peace building, and human security, it's crucial to unravel the connection between maladaptation and the potential for conflict risks. How is the African Development Bank accounting for the nexus between maladaptation and conflicts in the context of climate resilience initiatives? Can you provide any examples on how maladaptive practices exacerbate tensions? And what are the specific conflict risks associated with these challenges? Thank, thank you so much for having me. Uh, as you rightly indicated, uh, effects of climate change uh, create the most pervasive risks, particularly when you look at the conflict lens due to increasing number of either extreme weather events. Again, vulnerability to these particular events is also increased uh, due to the structure of biodiversity, either due to human activity as well as industrial activity, equally internal and uh, cross-border uh, climate-linked mobility, in addition to disaster displacement driven by the need for, uh, for people seeking new lands, again, seeks to, is coming out as an emerging trend. Equally, uh, again, what we've noted at the African Development Bank is that the impacts of climate change, including desertification, the rising sea levels again and also frequent uh, extreme weather patterns again also can curtail enjoyment of human rights again rights to life rights to water and equally uh, adequate housing <clears throat> the adverse effects of climate change therefore contribute to vulnerability uh, at the bank we have the, the country resilience and fragility assessment tool uh, which we use to assess the levels of fragility or pressures in, in, in each member country and one of the dimensions that we look at is the climate or environmental drivers of fragility. Again, uh, displaced persons, uh, again, uh, in countries where there is conflict, continue to really experience uh, challenges in terms of a lack of basic, the basic, basic, uh, basic amenities. The theme for the African Development Fund, that's the concession of funding window of the African Development Bank this year, uh, African Development Fund 16 under the current three-year cycle, 2023-2025, focuses on focusing climate-smart and resilient, inclusive, integrated Africa, again, underscoring the importance of uh, this nexus. Uh, issues of climate resilience are very, very important to the bank. Again, fragility and climate uh, adaptation uh, will be used as lenses to all our operations. So when the bank is investing any resources, there has to be application of either climate lens, again, also, uh, again, a fragility lens, and therefore, uh, this is a very, very important webinar, noting uh, this new tool that has been launched by CJR. Again, uh, there's need for the collaborative efforts even going forward to really ensure that, again, uh, the climate drivers of fragility are addressed and also foster social cohesion among communities where the banks funds projects. Thank you. 
thank you. Uh, and Mana, I'm going to turn to you now. Uh, for those working on integrating climate resilience within peacebuilding efforts, addressing maladaptation is of paramount importance. How can we effectively identify and mitigate maladaptive practices within peacebuilding responses, ensuring that our actions not only provide peace and social cohesion, but also build long-term climate resilience? And can you share strategies and examples from your work to that end? Thank you very much, Mark. Um, Carolina gave us a very useful definition of maladaptation. Maladaptation is essentially uh, the unintended consequences of an intervention, those that create a vulnerability uh, instead of increasing climate resilience. Now, the peacebuilding community has spent several decades developing and refining what we call conflict sensitivity, which aims to identify and mitigate risks of unintended consequences. So by their very nature, peacebuilding interventions should be very well equipped to anticipate and mitigate risk of maladaptation. And they are also very well placed to help other actors delivering climate actions in fragile contexts by sharing those peacebuilding tools and expertise. Now, it doesn't mean that peacebuilding interventions are immune to maladaptation, but when it happens, in my experience, it's often because of a narrow understanding of climate vulnerability risks and of the value of adaptation co-benefits. Many actors in fragile contexts still don't consider climate risks as a priority. They see it as a side issue, something that is the remit of the climate and environment community. And so when they do try to achieve climate co-benefits, um, sometimes because they feel pressured by donors or because of the opportunity to access climate finance, for example, it's often added as a separate component or um, often as an afterthought. And this is where we see risks of maladaptation arise because the design of climate resilience interventions is then not based on integrated risk analysis and an understanding of causes of climate vulnerability at the local level. Instead, it is often relying on exogenous solutions that are not context-specific. Now, if we don't integrate climate-induced vulnerability in our conflict analysis, we will not be able to mitigate the risks that our adaptations actions may trigger. So how do we mitigate this? Well, as an example, FCDO's uh, peacebuilding work in the Sahel is focused on land governance. And we know there is a lot of potential for natural resource management interventions to generate climate and environmental co-benefits. But we recognize that although our implementing partners have strong peacebuilding expertise, they don't necessarily have capacity and experience in climate adaptation and resilience. So our approach is to help support capacity building where possible, facilitate partnerships, and encourage joint programming with organizations that have complementary expertise. Thank you. And uh, Susanna, we're going to turn to you now. Uh, in the humanitarian sector, where climate resilience is crucial, how do you address the challenges of maladaptation within climate resilience projects? Can you share specific strategies or best practices that you've employed to ensure that your initiatives not only alleviate immediate humanitarian needs, but also foster long-term resilience and adaptability while guarding against maladaptive actions? Thank you, Mark. Um, WFP, um, WFP's mandate, and uh, in the context that we work, so WFP's mandate is mostly focused on um, zero hunger um, and reducing humanitarian need that is, um, you know, very much focused on food security. Um, and so in the context that WFP operates, 
In fact, um, 80% of our operations take place in conflict settings. So this idea of polycrises um, is very important to WFP's work, but it's something that is becoming more and more urgent. Um, you know, given that WFP focuses on food security, the idea of climate resilience is something that is up and coming as the urgency of that increases as well. Um, so when we as WFP, when we focus on programming, it's very much looking at the drivers of food insecurity, which could be climate um, or conflict. All this to say that I'm not sure whether um, the WFP really has yet a very good understanding of how our programming can or cannot um, ink or um, contribute to maladaptation. We definitely look at things like conflict sensitivity, working with the community to understand what they are facing as their drivers of food insecurity. Um, and so we do have a lot of examples of programming that look at natural resource management, for example. Um, that do contribute to climate uh, resilience and that also have peace co-benefits. Um, we have some of that programming in the Sahel. We also have it here in the Eastern Africa region uh, where WFP has uh, combined sustainable land management with natural resource management and ecosystem restoration activities that have shown to have um, good benefits towards um, peace and social cohesion in the community. Um, but it's really with this understanding coming from, you know, partners like CGIR, but also from the donors in really how to increase um, this through climate resilient programming. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And Linda, over to you. Uh, working towards the inclusion of communities and stakeholders is pivotal in addressing maladaptation effectively. How can inclusive strategies and community engagement play a role in identifying and mitigating maladaptive practices, thus promoting climate resilience? Can you share examples and insights from your work that highlight the importance of involving local communities in decision-making and implementation processes? Uh, thank you. Um, I think for it's, I should start with EGAD works in eight countries um, in Eastern Africa. And five out of the eight countries in Eastern Africa that we work in are considered either fragile or conflict affected. And the three others that are not considered fragile or conflict affected still have areas, particularly along the borderlands, that are fragile or conflict affected, which means. Um, working with local communities when you're going from one place to another becomes a bit complicated. And even as much as we um, talk about fragile and conflict-affected areas, it's almost like a neat way of trying to put, um, at least explain climate security in a simple way that makes sense. But on the ground, when you're talking about local communities, it becomes a bit more complex. Because if I'm talking about communities in Karamoja cluster, for example, which is along the borders between Kenya, Uganda, and South and, and Sudan. We are talking about issues of um, fragility that are related to cultural issues, cultural raiding. Um, and so designing 
a project, for example, um, and we have a lot of examples from a conflict early warning mechanism where they will talk about a project that is designed for water to benefit one community, for example, that ends up then causing conflict because it did not take into consideration that people fight over water. So when we design as a climate institute um, climate um, interventions for communities and, and talking about adaptation, you have to look at the risk. What is the community's risk? So as a climate institution, we'll try and understand, is, is it a drought? Is it a flood? Can we provide early warning systems? And then largely because our, our region is generally very food insecure, we'll go with an agricultural strategy. So we'll say, can we come up with a food security plan, whether it's the, the pastoralists or, um, or agro-pastoralists agri or just rely heavily on agriculture? But the challenge is with what you said in terms of the poly risk is we are not considering, okay, so what are the conflict issues surrounded with that? Because as a climate institute, your mandate is not in conflict. We're not thinking about the migration issues. We are not thinking about who owns the land and coming up with a strategy without thinking about all of this, which for a climate institute or an agricultural institute is not generally our mandate, then that's where the problems begin to come. How do you think about things that you are not trained to traditionally think about? Uh, thank you. So I'll have a few more questions for the panelists, but we will also leave time for audience questions as well. To ask a question to our panelists, please simply leave the question as a comment wherever you are watching the live stream and we'll get to as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Carolina, I'm gonna turn back to you now. How does the climate security sensitivity tool help increase the peace potential of adaptation? And can you provide some of some examples? Yes, so maybe it's useful if I give some background on, on the tool first. So the, the underlying structure of the climate security sensitivity tool is a uh, conceptual and theoretical framework that is based on environmental peace building theories. So these theories use environmental challenges and resource-based disputes as opportunities to build uh, intra- and inter-communal cooperation, social integration, uh, and peace through the transformation of natural resource management strategies. And the idea here is that through the same logic, uh, this tool defines ways through which climate adaptation can address conflict drivers, unify conflicting communities, again, shared insecurity, um, and work towards substantial integration. So the tool we present uh, offers climate adaptation actors and practitioners uh, recommendations uh, on how to enhance uh, the peace potential of their initiatives by guiding them on the factors that pose major concern in the geographical areas that they have targeted. So as a way to both prevent tension and foster social cohesion. So based on the contextual risk factors for conflict, it indicates the programmatic dimensions that um, the project should focus on and uh, and some examples uh, through which those dimensions can be achieved. Um, yeah, so we recently tested uh, the, um, the this tool. So we the climate security sensitivity tool was recently tested on the CGIO program for uh, climate and food security CCAPS. And the adaptation uh, project we assessed was the climate smart village approach. So broadly speaking, the climate smart village um, approach involves building capacity in climate smart technologies and practices and climate information services in various villages 
targeted, so including one in Cebu, in the Cebu region, in Mali, that we visited for testing the validity of the tool. And um, so on one hand, the results of the claim of the tool highlighted that uh, this adaptation program had been contributing to peace and was therefore coherent to local needs. So for instance, the, the, the climate smart village uh, addressed the um, gender inequality structures that were present through establishing uh, market gardening perimeters. So these perimeters had enabled women to sell their market garden produce, uh, earn more money, and, uh, and by cattle labor, which had eased their their work and transportation tasks and improve, improved their um, their purchasing power. Also, setting the setting up of storage uh, warehouses had enabled the community to cope with uh, the lean season, uh, especially in years of drought. And and this had encouraged producers to collaborate more uh, in the management of foodstuffs. Uh, and this had resulted in in an association and uh, and ultimately better social cohesion. But uh, on the other hand, the tool uh, showed that uh, showed a strong absence of, uh, of programmatic components linked to institutional capacity building in this climate smart village, uh, which is an essential factor for conflict prevention in this locality. And in fact, the lack of programmatic activities uh, targeting natural resource governance had uh, not prevented some unwanted consequences, such as deforestation. So in this case, uh, some trails to open uh, to open up the, uh, the, the locality um, had been laid simultaneously by another project. And as a result, illegal extraction of natural resources increased because uh, trucks were able to circulate more easily uh, in this village and, and stock up on, on wood. So deforestation in this case had resulted into mild conflicts over timber resources and non-timber forest products. Uh, so in this specific case, uh, if the uh, the adaptation project had allocated more importance to local governance capacities, these effects um, and conflicts or resources could have potentially been mitigated. That, so the idea, yeah, the idea through these kind of recommendations uh, is that um, this, yeah, through these recommendations, the the climate security sensitivity tool tries to increase the the peace potential of uh, of adaptation. Uh, thank you. Uh Eric, I'm going to turn to you now. Uh, the African Development Bank recently launched a call for proposals as part of the prevention envelope of the transition support facility. Can you please share why you are including climate security sensitive programming in such a strategic facility for the bank? And related to this, how can climate security sensitive programming effectively address maladaptation risks and contribute to a more holistic approach to addressing compounded crises in transition states. Thank you so much. Uh, the prevention envelope, uh, which was recently launched by the African Development Bank, again, uh, uh, exhibits or really represents an important shift in terms of the funding strategy or the transition support facility funding strategy to be able to align ourselves with the 2022-2026 Fragility and Resilience Strategy or the strategy for addressing fragility and building resilience in Africa again adopts a result-driven approach in terms of preventative approaches so rather than moving away from a crisis response but putting a more strong emphasis on preventative approaches with interventions to address uh, fragility and also a uh, conflict to really ensure that uh, there is lasting uh, resilience i sit at the transition states coordination office where we really look out for countries in fragile situations or what we call transition countries that which one in in Africa. And again, uh, some of these countries require more resources to target the various drivers of fragility. 
with the new prevention envelope, uh, additional resources have been availed to some of these countries in transition, uh, 21 in, in the continent, again, so that we're able to understand what are some of the root causes of fragility and put a strong emphasis on, on crisis prevention. Again, uh, it also brings in an aspect of partnership uh, with other institutions such as CGIR, the United Nations, to really finance innovative and high impact projects across the various thematic areas, including climate change and adaptation and also mitigation, and also within the humanitarian peace development nexus. Equally, again, when you look at uh, issues of uh, climate change and adaptation under the call for proposal, there were three thematic areas under this uh, uh, recent year call for proposal. The first one being gender equality, the uh, second one uh, analyzing private sector investment, and lastly, but not the least, uh, climate change adaptation and mitigation. Again, taking us back to uh, the climate security nexus. Uh, again, also aligned with the bank's climate change uh, and green growth strategy. The bank has been looking at uh, projects that can really create synergies, again, with the various internal instruments, uh, again, promoting resilience to shocks, uh, promote uh, climate change adaptation, issues of uh, the climate smart agriculture, also uh, green, green infrastructure, as well as renewable energy, just to really ensure that we are helping our communities uh, build resilience. Lastly, I would like to underscore that, uh, again, support has been mostly directed towards investments that really, uh, exhibit uh, climate uh, robustness and also preparedness. How can we help uh, the various African countries or our regional member countries at the bank to really strengthen uh, uh, the prevention aspects to address uh, the various uh, drivers of fragility, including uh, climate, uh, climate impacts? Thank you. Uh, thank you. And Susanna, turning to you, uh, East and Horn of Africa is becoming the heart of climate security sensitive programming with many UN organizations joining efforts to support uh, the EGAD coordination mechanism on climate security in Nairobi and many other initiatives in the region. WFP has always been at the forefront of this discussion. Can you please share what innovative approaches WFP employs or plans to employ to enhance the peace responsive nature of its programmatic interventions aimed at addressing climate related challenges? I think um, both Matt um, and um, Linda alluded to it, um, namely that, you know, looking at these poly crises really um, requires a very holistic approach. Um, but yet, as the UN, and I think, you know, as the humanitarian development uh, community, we all have our different mandates, and we all have a different way of approaching programming. So really, I think it's um, very important that WFP works together with very many different partners who all bring those different perspectives together. So in that um, innovative approach, we've also really looked to uh, research institutions like CGIR um, who are working with together closely on climate security programming and really what that means for WFP's programming as well. Uh, we also worked together with um, another organization uh, called Adelphi based out of Berlin, where they actually did climate risk analyses for WFP um, country offices, looking at the contexts where they work, 
really identifying what the climate risks um, are, what the pathways to conflict could be. And what we found was that really often by focusing on, for example, livelihood strategies um, to really increase not only food security, but also um, enhance you know, resilience to climate, for example, that was really going to get us um, out of it. Um, so in terms of the um, innovative approaches, it sounds quite straightforward, but really trying to integrate and layer programming much better because WFP has a whole gamut of programming that we run, um, ranging from social protection, looking at um, school feeding programs, Again, uh, natural resource management is one that comes up quite often when we talk about climate security programming, um, but really targeting that in one geographical area, focusing on it on communities, layering it and really integrating it together with partners um, who really also bring in the peace building and social cohesion aspects, I think will really get us uh, much further in our journey towards climate resilience and climate security programming. Uh, thank you. And uh, Mana, we're going to turn to you now. Humanitarian interventions are often blind to the role of climate in exacerbating the root causes of conflict and fragility. How can donors and important actors such as the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office help to bridge the humanitarian peace and development nexus? What are the types of tools needed to increase climate sensitivity of humanitarian interventions and increase the co-benefits of climate resilience action in humanitarian settings? Thank you, Mark. Um, well, let me start by saying that uh, humanitarian actors have already started bridging this gap and integrating climate resilience within their approaches and operations, um, as we've just heard from Susanna. Um, and in that way, they're actually ahead of, of many donors in a certain context. Now, I think one of the main reasons for this is that they are working on the front line and they see the impact that climate change and environmental degradation is having and how it's challenging people's resilience in ways that are new and more difficult to manage by communities. They see food insecurity and conflict increasing, uh, humanitarian needs increasing, while at the same time humanitarian funding is reducing. And in many places, they see governments and partners failing to tackle drivers of food insecurity, to lead on climate action, or to sustain and protect development gains. So in a way, they have no choice but fill the gap. Um, and you can see this in the work of organizations such as the Danish Refugee Council and their work on climate resilience with displaced communities, um, the work of the Red Cross Climate Center on anticipatory action, the work of the International Federation of the Red Cross um, with IUCN on nature-based solutions, or WFP's work on integrated resilience in the Sahel. So humanitarians are already building resilience and they're playing a, a really critical role. You know, uh, evidence shows that climate vulnerability and fragility overlap. The most vulnerable countries to climate change are also the most fragile and increasingly the ones with highest food insecurity. And we know that these are related, that climate change exacerbates food insecurity and conflict, vice versa. Yet political instability and insecurity mean that climate action in this context is underfunded. It doesn't reach the most vulnerable. It's very difficult. It's not keeping up with the pace of needs and it lacks continuity. And this is where humanitarian actors have a real comparative advantage. Um, they are present on the ground, even in times of crisis, and they can help ensure that political instability does not turn back the clock on resilience gains at the community level. 
Now, despite their good intentions, they are not immune to maladaptation, of course, especially as climate resilience and peace positive outcomes are not their core business. So I would say that key to avoiding maladaptation is to make sure humanitarian interventions do two things, um, amongst others. The first one is that they use self-assessment tools like the, the climate conflict sensitivity tool developed by CGIR. Uh, that they rely on conflict and climate-informed risk analysis in order to take a long-term approach and tackle root causes of vulnerability. The second is that they are conflict-sensitive and climate-sensitive, so they can mitigate the unintended consequences of their interventions and avoid maladaptation. Now, that's not easy, especially with limited resources. So to achieve this, they will need to either scale up or develop partnerships. And they are doing that already. Um, and a very good example we have in the region is the work that ICRC is doing in Niger, um, for the eco-resilience program for which they are partnering with both peacebuilding and environment actors. Uh, thank you. And, and Linda, to you, in your opinion, how can peace contributing tools facilitate more inclusive and effective climate initiatives? And please share your insights on how the climate security sensitivity tool aligns with your strategies and how can it better involve communities and stakeholders in addressing climate challenges? Also, can you share your plans for integrating programmatic tools into your upcoming projects and outline the expected applicability to different contests or regions where you operate? Uh, thank you. I, I think I'm glad you mentioned the EGAD climate security coordination mechanism because uh, when we're thinking through it, um, about towards the end of 2020 and trying to figure out coming from a context that's experiencing extreme conflict and also experiencing extreme climatic events and having such so many organizations whether it's humanitarian research um, in climate and conflict and peace building all with different mandates um, how can we bring them together and begin to understand the risks to risks together how can we begin to anticipate the risks and respond in a in a way that is an, enables us not to make our climate uh, interventions or adaptations maladaptive and taking into consideration the fact that climate experts like myself people in climate science are not necessarily peace experts but also peace experts are not necessarily climate experts. So how do you create a space where people work in different things to think about this one person at the local ground and why, what is it that is making them vulnerable? Is it climate? Is it conflict? Is it, so understanding the sense of vulnerability, is it poverty? And I think you mentioned it at the beginning, you have many poly risks, but the danger is that because we, understand things or taught things in such a siloed perspective, it becomes almost difficult to take a tool like this as a climate person or should it be implemented by a climate institute? Should it be implemented by a peace institute? Should we then hire experts to join? So it's, I think, as a field in terms of climate security, we've generally agreed that this is a problem in terms of how we work it out and what this tool is beginning to give us is this is one lens where we can begin to think about what is the solution for this for the for the person who's been exposed what is what is it that is making them vulnerable to climate change is it poverty and even as the the, the region becomes more um 
fragile. Like, for example, when we began the, the, the discussions about the Igad Climate Security Coordination Mechanism, the conflict in Sudan has, had not yet happened. So now we're beginning to think about what do you do when you have situations or countries that were already stable before, and now all the investments that you've made in terms of climate adaptation, climate mechanisms, and warning systems are now being destroyed because of conflict. So what, what then becomes a solution? So this becomes one tool when we bring everybody towards the table in coordination to begin to think about what are the solutions? How do we work in a system that's not used to working together? And how do we begin to draft in, um, in an area that we're not necessarily all experts at? Thank you. Uh, and just a reminder, we're going to get to audience questions momentarily. Just leave your comment, your question as a comment, wherever you are uh, watching the live stream. I have one lightning round question for each of you. Uh, so please just take no more than a minute to answer my question. Can you share your top strategy that you consider essential to increase the peace potential of climate adaptation initiatives? What specific action or approach do you believe should be prioritized to ensure that climate adaptation efforts not only address environmental concerns, but also contribute to peace, stability, and social cohesion in vulnerable regions? And Carolina, we'll start with your, your top recommendation. Okay, so uh, my top recommendation would be, I mean, as I mentioned to uh, describing the tool, developing really context-specific localized and context-specific uh, climate adaptation projects that really acknowledge local dynamics and uh, and issues uh, and, and projects that are not therefore not standardized. So, and this also means uh, consulting the needs of uh, beneficiaries before implementing interventions and really taking into consideration both high and grass grassroots level actors uh, in, in in the development of programs and in the design of these uh, of these projects thank you and eric your top recommendation going forward thank you mark uh, i would like to also pick it up from where uh, carolina just left i think there is need to work closely with the civil society actors particularly for us as development finance institutions and also the development actors how closely can we work with civil society organizations and, and community-based organizations, because they really understand the impact of climate change on the ground. And equally, how do we establish a community of practice, uh, as uh, uh, Linda alluded to, uh, again, with peace actors, uh, climate change experts, and all, all researchers, and, and all, uh, again, uh, relevant uh, colleagues uh, who are within this space. So how do we really establish a community of practice? Uh, this can be very, very important, so that we can cross-share knowledge, uh, particularly within the various discipline to ensure resilience. Thank you. Thank you. And Susanna, to you, your top rec. In the same vein as Eric, um, building partnerships. So acknowledging that we don't have all the answers, we don't have all the expertise, um, and really looking to um, other organizations to help us really achieve that holistic integrated programming that we need in order to achieve climate resilience with um, peace building as well. Thank you. And Mana, your top recommendation. So I would say we need to stop considering climate um, as a side issue um, in places where 
climate vulnerability, extreme climate vulnerability and, and fragility overlap. It should be everyone's job really to reduce climate vulnerability. Um, it has to be all hands on deck. Governments, humanitarian, civilization, peace building and development actors. Now it doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean changing what people do, but it means changing how they do it um, by relying on joint risk analysis and making sure that they build on each other's skills and comparative advantage to have impact at the local level. Thank you. And Linda, last two over over to you. Uh, thank you. I think mine is similar to Manis in terms of um, building systems, systemic, because there are areas, of course, where that is a challenge, but there has to be some kind of system that's built, particularly within government, in order to make it sustainable, in order to make it replicatable, in order to do it in an affordable way. But doing it from a project perspective and, and pilot interventions and like if we're not building systems within the government that can bring people together that can allow them to use even the resources that they have better then it becomes um i guess maladaptive so to speak yeah uh, well, a big thank you to the panelists for taking my questions. Stephanie Jacquet, project leader in the climate action team at CGIAR and the Alliance of Biodiversity and SEAT, has been monitoring your questions. I'm going to turn the mic over to Stephanie right now to pose your questions to the audience. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark. Um, I've been monitoring the question, and they are very interesting questions from, from the audience. And I'd like to, to start with the question of Mr. Tagba. He was asking, are there strategies for ensuring effective communication of climate change impacts to local communities in diverse settings in developing countries? And he was, request, uh, he was suggesting Africa. Um, I may ask um, Mark from the AF, uh, AFDB to answer this question because you mentioned the role of CSO. So what are the strategies for uh, ensuring effective communication of climate change impacts to local communities? Okay, thank you so much. I, I think at a regional level, uh, various member states have a role to play, particularly also working within the regional economic communities. For instance, in the Eastern African region, uh, East African community, the Southern African region, the Sadak community. So how can the regional economic communities work closely uh, with the civil society actors to really disseminate this knowledge so that at least uh, at the end of the day, it, it boils down again to partnerships. So the national, the regional, the regional member countries, regional economic communities, how can they structure communities of practice to be able to channel uh, the communication effectively on issues to do with the uh, climate change and climate adaptation? and also how to connect peace dividends in fragile context. Thank you very much. Uh, Linda, do you want to add anything to this question? Yes, how we've done it is through radio. We realized we did a survey and we realized the easiest way to reach rural communities, particularly in Africa, is through the radio. So, and it's most uh, cost effective as well. So we partner with radio stations, we train media to understand um, climate and how to understand and communicate climate information because it becomes an, an easy avenue for local communities to even reach their um, government officials by having a radio show where the meteorologist is there or the um, 
climate agricultural expert is there to have that exchange in a cost-effective way. So radio has been, in our experience, particularly for the region, a very effective way to be able to reach a large number of rural population to tell them what's coming, what it means, and also allow for not just a one-way communication, but for communication and feedback between the communities and those generating the climate information and trying to communicate its impacts. Thank you very much. Um, I have another question from uh, uh, Mr. Belperon. He's asking how much your effort to bring together climate and peace building together have reached out to big climate finance such as the Green Climate Funds. Uh, maybe I can ask Carolina, how did they scale the CSST to uh, a larger level like the Green Climate Fund? Um, so, so far, uh, as uh, you may imagine, the tool is quite new. So we've been using it with, uh, first internally with uh, different projects within the CJR and now also externally with, uh, with other partners. And in the meantime, we have um, based, I mean, based on the CSSD, the Climate Security Sensitivity Tool, we have uh, extended, we have developed um, uh, other tools, other programming tools, maybe more um, uh, specific to, to funds. And uh, one of them being the Climate Security Programming Dashboard. And this one is specifically targeted at the climate funds. And so, but yeah, as you can imagine, this is all a new product. So um, we are currently reaching to, to, to climate funds, but yeah, it's a work in progress. Uh, Mana, do you want to add uh, something to this uh, question? Thank you, Stefani. Yes, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, we, we know that um, the, the big vertical funds like the GCF um, struggle to make climate finance reach um, fragile countries and especially uh, the local level in those countries. Uh, so I think it's very important that we do translate the work that we're doing on, on um, the links between um, uh, climate and, and conflict co-benefits to how those organizations and institutions are working. And I think, um, you know, the work that FCDO is doing is trying to um, feedback those messages to, to the GCF, for example, making sure that the, the operating uh, procedures are, are easier um, for organizations to um, access these funds. And I think, you know, if I'm not mistaken, Christoph, you're from Save the Children, which was one of the first um, INGOs that actually uh, managed to get accredited to the, to the GCF. And I think this is what we need uh, to continue doing, making sure that organizations that can deliver um, on the ground in some of the most vulnerable places um, are able to access uh, those, those funds. Thanks. Thank you very much for those answers. Um, I have another question from uh, uh, Marina Masorillo. She's, uh, she's asking about early warning system and predictive models and how they can help to identify potential maladaptive practices that might, that might escalate it into conflict and how effectively uh, have, they, have these been employed? Uh, does any one of you want to answer this question? Yes, Linda, please. I think the biggest challenge we've had so far is data, is because for you to be able to predict something, for you, for you, for a model to be able to understand what the problem is and give you an output, because a model is only as good as um, usually my professor used to say, garbage in, garbage out. So if you do not have the right data, conflict data, for example, to understand historically what has made something maladaptive, 
which again is completely, it's not always easy to say. It's easy to, it's, so the data to do something like this is not available, especially in Africa, where even the data to predict climate because the models are not understanding our systems uh, very well. So even that is a challenge. So now taking it a, uh, a step further in terms of being able to predict the challenge, to being able to understand the impacts and it being able to then say these impacts are going to be maladaptive, that will require a lot of data, which currently um, we don't have. Thank you. Um, and there is another uh, question in the chat about a continuous update of this tool. For example, are there any plans to continuously update the climate security sensitivity tool based on feedback and involving climate and conflict dynamics? So maybe Carolina again, can you tell us a bit more about that? Because this is linked to the data issue, right? Yes. Um, so the climate security sensitivity tool employs a global database on different social, economic, political, and natural factors uh, at different scales based on data availability. And, uh, and yes, continuous updates are planned. So as soon as these data points update, we plan on updating the tool and, uh, and ideally develop uh, improved version, versions of the tool together with partners as uh, the, as long as we as we go on and continue using it, um, yeah, with partners. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe I can follow up this question with a specific question to WFP. Um, you are also collecting a lot of data. How uh, this data can also help to feed in help to feed into these tools, and how do you see this collaboration? Thank you for that question. Um, so we do collect a lot of data. Uh, it's mostly focused around food security. Uh, so we've worked with CGIR here in the region to uh, combine efforts around research and collecting data um, to create uh, what's what CGIR is calling climate security hotspot maps. Uh, which have been very interesting for WFP to contribute to as well, overlaying them with the food security data that we collect um, just to enhance and to see uh, also for WFP programming, you know, are we going in the right areas, um, overlaying food security and climate security hotspots as well uh, to understand, you know, in this declining a humanitarian funding um, situation that we're really maximizing um, the funding and the resources that we have. Okay, thank you very much. Does anyone want to add something to any of these points? Uh, if not, I'm going to give back the floor to Peter Lederhag to close this session. Thank you very much to all. Excellent. Thanks so much. Many thanks to our panelists for the enlightening discussions. We explored the connections between climate adaptation, peace, human security, and maladaptation throughout the whole discussions. We've tackled several pivotal questions. Let me now summarize uh, those questions and the insights we have gained from the discussion. So, so one question was, um, how can we harness the multiple benefits of climate ad adaptation to enhance peace building and human security? 
So we heard from MANA that uh, humanitarian actors have started to, to bridge the climate and conflict nexus. This is because they are, are, are at the forefront and they don't have another option than combining climate and conflict pro programming. Of course, there's still a lot of work to be done and often climate is still uh, forgotten. Uh, Susie then also talked about that in WFP, focusing on livelihood strategies helped to also address peace and security concern. Um, she explained that uh, we need uh, to integrate and layer different uh, programming approaches in one geographic locations. Eric then um, talked about the, the new call that AFTB puts out um, to address the, the poly crisis and the climate security nexus. Um, to, they're looking for projects that can create synergies among climate conflict, security, and, and other drivers. So that that's that's great news and and then uh, we had like uh, also the top recommendations to incre increase the peace potential of climate adaptation so we had carolina was saying using the tool that she developed to understand the local needs so local needs very important eric uh, mentioned that uh, working closely with civil society actors and establish a community of practice is very important susanna uh, talked about also building partnership and acknowledging that we don't all have all the answers and expertise that we need to work together. So partnership again. And uh, Mana uh, highlighted that we should uh, stop considering climate as a side issue. It needs to be mainstreamed in all the peace building work. Um, maybe not change how we do things, but change how we do things, but not necessarily what. Uh, Linda then also uh, highlighted the, the fact that we need to move from project-based uh, to more systems and holistic approach. So um, put systems in place that last longer. Then we talked about how can uh, we prevent con conflicts resulting from maladaptation and ensure a more holistic approach. So focusing on the, the maladaptation aspect. So Eric uh, explained then that in the African Development Bank that um, they're using the country resilience and fragility tool to, to ad address and, and avoid uh, maladaptation. And that fragility and climate is mainstream to, to all the AFTB programming to assure avo avoiding maladaptation. Linda then uh, talked about IGAT's work, IGAT's work in fragile and conflict affected countries and how, how important it is to involve uh, communities in those processes. And but then also that the challenge again that, that we that there's so many different topics that need to be tackled in in those um, poly crises and that we don't always have all the answers. Uh, Susie also talked about about that and um, the importance of um, institutions to work together, partner to to address and, and tackle those issues. And Mana again said that uh, the peace building actors uh, they should be very well equipped. Um, to, to work on those issues because they are at the forefront and they, they remain on site even during the crisis. And finally, we, we talked about how, how can we use insights provided by, for example, the climate security sensitivity tool for more peace positive climate action. So, so we learned that maladaptation is defined as unattended negative consequences of, of climate adaptation. Um, Carolina then explained that the tool identifies local drivers of, of conflicts and insecurities and helps identify climate um, adaptation programs, interventions that help adapt to climate change, but also produce uh, peaks, co-benefits. 
and that the tool was tested in uh, the Climate Smart Villages, so a climate action interventions in Mali and Ghana, and helped to identify climate adapt adaptation activities that could strengthen uh, peace and security. Uh, Mana also mentioned uh, different efforts across uh, the Sahel that are underway, but that there's uh, much more work uh, needed. And Linda also mentioned that those uh, sort of tools are, are very important and very much needed. But uh, the question is if, if we then need like all those different specialists, like the peace and security, the climate specialists, to tackle the, the, the issues holistically, or if, if those tools can, can then be also deployed by people that are maybe not uh, experts uh, on the topic. So with that, thank you so much to the panelists and the audience. I think this was a, a, a great um, discussion. And so I wish you all uh, a good day and uh, see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.